Hello and welcome to Jurassic Park. And when we were young, the podcast where we dive into pop culture from 65 million years ago and see how it holds up today. I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to eat the goat. I'm Seth, the host most likely to hold on to your butts. <laughs> and I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to mate with another female if given enough time. <laughs> Ooh, hint for future episodes? <laughs> that was Becky's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> So, listeners, in this episode, we are revisiting Jurassic Park. And yes, we do plan to have dinosaurs on this dinosaur tour. Yes, we bred raptors. And yes, we do have a T-Rex. <laughs> Say that again? We have a T-Rex. Jurassic Park was based on a novel by Michael Crichton, published in 1990. The film was directed by Steven Spielberg. And we'll also take a look at the 1997 sequel, The Lost World, also directed by Steven Spielberg, and at least touch on subsequent entries in the franchise that were not directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Let's talk about our history with Jurassic Park. I'll go first. <laughs> so before this podcast, I'd just never seen these movies before. Lies! Yes. It is quite possibly my favorite movie of all time, Jurassic Park, the first one. At least sometimes. I don't like answering that question because it's too broad. I really like ranking things, but I like to rank <laughs> things more specifically. So my favorite monster movie is Jurassic Park. My favorite Samuel L. Jackson movie is definitely Jurassic Park. And at least sometimes I've like called this out as my favorite film of all time. And I know it is my favorite Spielberg movie because I did rank them all and it was number one. <laughs> What was two? Schindler's List. Oh, okay. Number three wow. was Jaws. It felt difficult to, like... Those three were really hard to so, so the Holocaust, a, a number two monumental situation for you? A, <laughs> I wasn't a second ranking banana? them by which was the most important historically. <laughs> Although I would still maybe give the edge to dinosaurs, because, hello, they were around for a really long time. They just had a head start. If a mosquito bit me and scientists analyzed the fossil millions of years from now, they would find that my DNA consists mostly of Jurassic Park. <laughs> this movie has seeped into every fiber of my being. He's wearing a Jurassic Park shirt right now. I sure am. <laughs> How many dinosaur tattoos do you have on your person? The world may never know. <laughs> Why don't you have a Jurassic Park tattoo is the question. That's a really good question, and I don't think I'd ever thought about it, but wow. next time you see me... <laughs> I don't know what it would be. I think it would be the skeleton on the book cover. That's too common. No. Really? The All mosquito right. in an amber? That's more likely. Dennis Nedry? Uh-uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't say the magic word. Uh-uh-uh. I think it would be Lex with the jello spoon. That's probably actually what it would be. God, that would be an ugly test. Oh, man. Yeah, that would be bad. And it would be black and white, but the jello would be green. Oh, God. <laughs> I remember seeing this movie in the theaters. I was... 10 and it was awesome <laughs> i very vividly remember the opening scene with shooter <laughs> and <laughs> seeing the brontosaurus for the first time like i remember these moments in the theater we talk about this a lot i have vivid memories of a lot of these movies where the theater is completely full and you can feel the energy in the crowd like we talked about some movies um like twister where it was a full crowd Everybody was, like, shocked or laughing at the same time. And, and I definitely remember that experience seeing Jurassic Park with a full crowd. I mean, everybody thought it was awesome. I remember the same year, 1993, The Nightmare Before Christmas came out in theaters. And I also remember that theater-going experience. And it just felt like, just like Jurassic Park, like this new, crazy movie that's never been seen before. And they were both my favorite movies of that year. 
I was really into dinosaurs after this movie and there was some like dinosaur magazine available at the supermarket and I would like get that every time, like every month. Dinos monthly? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, because I think this movie made everybody into dinosaurs, especially little kids. So of course they like had a dinosaur magazine to like cash in on the Jurassic Park phenomenon. And I remember at the Oscars that year, I didn't understand how Oscars worked. So I remember listening to like, and the nominees are, and being like disappointed that Jurassic Park was nominated for a lot of technical awards, but not like acting or... I remember like Best Picture, I was really disappointed it wasn't nominated because I didn't understand that like they announced the nominations beforehand. (laughs) And that was the whole process. So I was like, oh, Jurassic Park should have won. Even though it was Schindler's List. (laughs) So it's another Spielberg. (laughs) But I remember that movie paired with Death Becomes Her, which I came, I think came out like the year before. Mm-hmm. I got really into visual effects, so I was really into that category specifically. So I remember being really excited when it won. And I was really into visual effects for a while because of Jurassic Park. Yeah, I, I loved this movie. I read the book. When we got to college, Steph, you were a year behind us, but I was the same year as Chris. And like our whole dorm floor was like super in a Jurassic Park. And like we would talk about Jurassic Park stories of how like, where were we when it came out on VHS? Like I actually re- oh my God. remember mm. sharing that story. It was an event and it was good memories. Much like both of you, I have vivid memories of seeing this movie in the theater, in a packed house, and it was one of the first moments in my life seeing a movie in a packed house in a good movie theater, noticing and appreciating the value of cinema as spectacle, as a thing that could genuinely shock and surprise and thrill you. Yeah, it was one of my very favorite movie-going experiences as a kid. I never got the toys for Jurassic Park. There were a lot of other things I got the toys for, but that just didn't happen to be one of them. My friends loved the books. I didn't particularly get into them. I tried to read Jurassic Park and just kind of didn't get into the story or like got the impression that there wasn't that much added in the book that I hadn't gotten from the movie. It was the closest thing in my childhood to seeing the first Star Wars movie out in a theater because there had been nothing like Jurassic Park on a movie screen at least certainly in my lifetime, but really, like, now with a longer view, I I think there wasn't really any kind of movie on the scale of Jurassic Park before it other than, like, King Kong. So I was always into dinosaurs as a kid. I played with Dino Riders toys. There was a TV show in 1988 that apparently was only 14 episodes, but I still remember them very vividly. There were also Dinosaur Transformers, which I tried to own. I was right there with you in terms of dorking out about dinosaurs. Yeah. So I remember seeing the trailer for Jurassic Park in a theater, and I was like, well, I'm definitely seeing that the moment it comes out. (laughs) It was right at my alley. So yeah, I was really, really excited to see Jurassic Park and really wanted to see it as soon as possible. And I didn't. (laughs) Oh no. Jurassic Park was released in June. I had just turned 10 years old and my parents suspected it might be too scary. So they saw it without me while they were on vacation. (gasps) Also without me. Oh my God. In Alaska and said, yes, we have confirmed that it is too scary. I was forbidden from seeing Jurassic Park. (gasps) Would you confer today that a 10 year old would be too scared by it? I would confer that it's child abuse to suggest such a thing. (laughs) (laughs) I would infer that someone's parents owe him damages for the psychological harm of denying him. I can see why you would think it's too scary for children, but it is the children movie. Like, it is for children. Needless to say, I was in complete agony. (laughs) 
<laughs> there was a dinosaur movie in theaters making a whole ton of money that everyone was talking about, <laughs> and I was not allowed to see it. I begged, I pleaded, I'm sure I offered up various appendages. They would not budge. So I somehow managed to get a hold of the book and bought that. And so I read the book. And it's filled with all this like complicated scientific jargon and really graphic descriptions of the dinosaur attacks. So I will read a passage of Jurassic Park. I know exactly what passage you're going to read. The and Jurassic Passage. Before you start, I read the book in sixth grade as well. And I think it's kind of like an advanced read for mm-hmm. a sixth grader. For sure. Um, a so, little bit, yeah. So no one else in my class was reading it. And the part you're going to read is Nedry mm-hmm. being attacked by the Dilaposaurus? Dilophosaurus. Dilophosaurus. And it is so much more graphic than the movie that I would go around class and be like, read this. <laughs> and they would be like, oh, my God. You are the devil, child. I was. He stretched out his hands, waving them wildly in the air to ward off the attack he knew was coming. And then there was this new searing pain, like a fiery knife in his belly. And Nedry stumbled, reaching blindly down to touch the ragged edge of his shirt. And then a thick, slippery mass that was surprisingly warm. And with horror, he suddenly knew he was holding his own intestines in his hands. The dinosaur had torn him open. His guts had fallen out. So that gives you a flavor of (laughs) the book I was reading when I was 10 years old. I remember reading that particular passage and some other ones because my friends were like, oh, you got to read this because they didn't show this in the movie. That was me. (laughs) That was our friend. (laughs) Wait, you showed me that back in the day? (laughs) So after reading that, I was like, oh, yeah, Jurassic Park must be really scary. Like, I haven't seen intestines in a movie before. (laughs) So, like, I just assumed that that's what everyone was talking about as being scary. Months passed. School started in September and I was the boy the legendary boy who had not seen Jurassic Park (laughs) have you heard the tale of the boy (laughs) the boy who could not see Jurassic Park (laughs) it was bad enough in the summer but then once I was suddenly around all these kids at school again and I was literally the only one in the entire class who had not seen Jurassic Park and that was all anyone was talking about I really pity you (laughs) yeah (laughs) I have previously mentioned on the podcast that I had a friend who only spoke raptor. (laughs) (laughs) I had this friend and I had not seen Jurassic Park. (laughs) Like, that was as close as I could get to seeing the movie. I was pitied by all. (laughs) In September, my parents, I think they took me out for, like, frozen yogurt or something. And while I was distracted by that, they secretly bought tickets to Jurassic Park and made me close my eyes. And, like, I put out my hand and they, like, put the tickets in my hand. And I'm not joking that it was the most exhilarating moment of my life. (laughs) Now that you're ten and a half, you can handle this movie. I think I just wore them down by being, like, miserable and being like, everybody else has seen it. Like, why are you ruining my life? Good. That's how you do it. You wear them down bit by bit. So then I saw the movie and I was like, where are all the intestines? Like, I was really, like, expecting intestines everywhere. So I really liked the movie. I wasn't scared by it because I had read the book. And the anticipation had been so built up that there was no way I was going to be like, I want to leave. I was a little mad that they also took my sister, my little sister, to see it. (laughs) Oh, no. And I was like, excuse me. It was... Like, I wasn't old enough to see it, and now she's, like, two and a half years younger than me. She gets to see it. I guess they didn't want to find a babysitter. (laughs) I think that's a pretty easy deduction, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. I would have been really mad. (laughs) I would have been really mad, though. (laughs) I mean, this is how I am the person I am today. It's through this scarring experience. This explains so much. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I never stopped loving this movie. I remember basically drooling for it to come out on VHS, which did take a very long time. And I bought it, and I watched it, and I had all the toys. I had the visitor center. I had the Explorer Jeep that they were around in. I had the gates. (laughs) I didn't have any of these toys, surprisingly. Yeah, I didn't either. My friends had tons of Jurassic Park toys. I was just never drawn in by them. Oh, I think they were my favorite toys. I mean, it's really fun to play with dinosaurs. Well, then wasn't there like a T-Rex that was like three and a half feet long or something? Yes, that you could I, had get? I had everything. You brought it here with you today. I, I do wish I had my Jurassic Park, but I brought my childhood copy of the book and several making of books. We went to USC. We took a Spielberg class. We got to see it on the big screen for the first time since, you know, it had come out. I saw it in 3D. I'm really into Jurassic Park is basically the moral of the story. So I didn't take that Spielberg class, but I did like kind of audit it. I would mostly come and see the movies, which they would allow to everyone. And so I remember walking with my friend John to go see, I believe it was Jurassic Park on the big screen at the theater on campus. And then the first person that walks out when we know it's time to like go in and we can go see the movie was Steven Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just like, here we are like two film students at Spielberg USA. (laughs) And there he is. And I was just like staring at him and then stare at each other and go, ah! (laughs) And we're like literally holding hands, jumping up and down. (laughs) And then we go in and watch Jurassic Park. (laughs) And then you held hands with Steven Spielberg. I didn't even need to. The fact that I was literally like... In his presence. In his presence was one of the best days of my life. I'm a huge Spielberg fan. Yeah. Jurassic Park and probably Schindler's List are my favorite Spielbergs. I would say it it depends what one is one and two. Mm -hmm. It's probably Schindler's List first. There are no sharks in Schindler's List, and I feel like that's not pointed out often enough. (laughs) I think that 1993 is peak Spielberg, not just because I think he made one of the best action movies and one of the best historical dramas of all time, but I watched a lot of Animaniacs, which he executive (laughs) produced, and sometimes they would draw him in. I remember that. that. And that was like in my brain, Spielberg with the baseball hat and the curly hair around that age is like peak Spielberg for me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've seen him in person a few times and like just recently saw him at a screening of The Post. And still, it's like, I'm just in awe of being in of his in his presence i can't even speak because it's like so it's like looking at the hollywood sign (laughs) yeah he's like the human hollywood sign my life is relatively unique in several ways one of which is that i get to see a-list people like that constantly so i get steven spielberg's presence like with a pretty high degree of regularity he's not like a guillermo del toro who shows up to do like q a's on the opening nights of his movie anymore but i've definitely like seen him a lot of times and i'm pretty inoculated against any kind of feeling of being starstruck with almost any people. But with him, there's still that kind of feeling of like somewhat reverential awe. And it's funny because among all of the A-list kind of people I I get exposed to, like, he's the person that the most other people I'm with will always be, like, just so quietly reverential. It really is, like, you find yourself having come upon a meeting with the Pope or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, he's, like, the Pope of entertaining cinema. He is. And I, I think a big part of that, he's made so many movies that you can meet a different person and they'll have a different Spielberg movie as their number one. It's not like he only made, like, two 
few good movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you can find a Close Encounters person or a Jurassic Park person um, or an E.T. person. Or a dual person. You can't find a dual person. E.T. is a close, is almost in the, it's probably the trifecta of those three. That was my number four. (laughs) Um, But I think one of the things that also maybe makes him this figure is he seems like such a nice person too and seems like deserving and he's like a good person. I don't know if you saw the Spielberg documentary that's on HBO. No, not yet. But I recommend watching it. It's like two hours of like, oh yeah, that's a great movie. That's a great movie. (laughs) And usually when you watch like a documentary, there's some sort of like conflict or drama or something with the figure that it's about. But he's such a nice guy that it's like, yep, Spielberg's great. Here's another talking head. I love working with Spielberg. And there's like a section where he's like, I used to be kind of a dick, but then Kathleen Kennedy called me out on it. And then I shipped up and shaped up and (laughs) everybody likes me. Like there's just absolutely no conflict. He just seems like a really hardworking, deserving, creative person who has had a great successful career. Yeah. Even when I've seen him, like the moderators are like nervous. Like they'll say like, oh, I'm so intimidated to be asking you questions. There's not very many people who don't have some kind of respect or awe for Steven Spielberg. Like anyone who makes movies probably likes at least one of his movies or at least can recognize how influential so many of his movies have been. My husband is not like, he wouldn't call like Steven Spielberg one of his favorite directors, but he like really, really loves Lincoln. Like that's his favorite Spielberg. <laughs> he's a Lincoln person. So, yeah, there's, he's, he's a, a Lin- Lincoln. Yeah. So they're, they're literally, somebody has a Spielberg movie that like is a their Spielberg favorite. for all seasons. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's somebody who's like, oh my God, I love Hook. That's my favorite Spielberg. Oh, there are a lot you know? of people who love Hook. Yeah. And it, War it Horse. <laughs> There's not a lot of directors that are like that. Like, even, like, the Coen brothers have made a lot of movies, but usually, you know, there's maybe, like, three that go to the top. Mm -hmm. But Spielberg, I feel like you could get a different answer from everybody. Mm -hmm. There's almost no, like, definitively bad movie. Like, most people, like, every one of his movies has its defenders. I mean, I would certainly say he's made some stinkers. A couple, but... Yeah, we can get into that later. (laughs) His batting average is pretty high, even with some movies that were misses. That, I think, is one of the most impressive things about a career that is so inherently impressive. For the most part, he's made such good decisions, and even when he has made a stinker here or there, he follows it up with something that is very different, that's coming from a totally different place... And even at whatever age he is now, he's in, what, his late 60s, maybe early 70s. 70s. He's still trying very new things. So we've talked a lot about uh, Steven Spielberg. Good old Stevie Spiels. Let's learn a little bit about the other very imaginative man who is behind Jurassic Park. That would be Michael Crichton. All vertebrate embryos are inherently female anyway. They just require an extra hormone given at the right developmental stage to make them male. We simply deny them that. Deny them that? John, the kind of control you're attempting is, uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. There it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life, uh, finds a way. Crichton also had a ton of other hit novels, mostly science fiction, most of which would eventually be adapted into films after Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, he's one of those people up there with Stephen King in terms of, like, the number of his books that have been adapted into movies. For sure. There are more that have than have not. 
Michael Crichton first wrote a screenplay about bringing dinosaurs back from extinction in 1981, but he felt that there was something missing from his story, so he just kind of set it aside. Then his wife was pregnant in 1989, and suddenly Crichton couldn't pass a toy shop without going in and buying something for their unborn child. So most of these things ended up being stuffed dinosaurs, and his wife asked why he was buying dinosaurs for a girl, and he kind of realized that it was his obsession with dinosaurs more than, like, really thinking that his daughter would love these things. So he resurrected or cloned his dinosaur screenplay, solving a key problem his original draft had, which was who would pay to bring dinosaurs back. And he had the idea that, like, it would only be done for entertainment's sake. He was against that idea at first because it was very similar to the plot of Westworld, which is also about a theme park going awry. But in the end, like, that was the only thing he could think of that made sense for why anyone would spend billions of dollars to do this. His first draft of the book was mostly from Tim and Lex's point of view, the child's point of view, um, but that didn't work. So he continued working on it and the book was published in late 1990. Did you guys ever read any of Crichton's books besides Jurassic Park? Nope. I feel like I tried to read like The Andromeda Strain and The Terminal Man because I think those are the ones that were signed by Michael Crichton, but I don't know if I got very far. They're v- he's very like, there's lots of medical mm-hmm. like terminology and even in Jurassic Park, I think as a sixth grader reading it, I kind of passed over a lot of the sciencey parts mm-hmm. to get to the action and character parts. I read, after Jurassic Park, many of his books and was really into them. Congo, very scary book. Uh, the movie, less so. Scary Amy. in different... Amy! <laughs> scary in different ways. Andromeda Strain, I really liked that book and found it very scary. Like, the way that he writes, it is very, like, clinical and Dry. scientific. But that makes it, I think, extra scary in a way because it's so matter-of-fact, but there's these awful things happening. Personally, these things were convincing enough that felt like they could happen, including in Jurassic Park. So the galleys for Jurassic Park started circling Hollywood in May 1990, several months before the publication. Days after that, there was already a bidding war. (laughs) Like that long, really? How fast are they? Well, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Oh. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Yeah. So Crichton had already spoken to Spielberg about it because Spielberg had bought a script for ER. So I guess it was before Interesting. Okay. ER was a show. And Crichton had previously had a really bad experience with a bidding war on Congo in the 70s, which earned him $1 million, which is a lot in the 70s. But like the movie never got made. And so he really wanted to see this become a movie. So he told Spielberg, like, if you, if you will direct this movie versus just produce it, like, you can have this. But this being Hollywood, the studios did not accept that. And they started a bidding war anyway. Warner Brothers wanted it for Tim Burton. Mm. 20th Century Fox wanted it for Joe Dante. What did he do? Gremlins? Yeah. 
picture a Tim Burton Jurassic Park with like claymation dinosaurs. Yeah, like I a stop motion. I don't want to think yeah. about it. Yeah. And TriStar wanted it for Richard Donner, who had done the Superman movies. Huh. I could also have seen that, yeah. But Crichton went with Spielberg because um, he thought he had the best chance of actually getting it made. Uh, Spielberg was coming off of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at the time, which was a big hit and a very like crowd-pleasing movie. And he had a track record of, you know. Yeah, he had other hit <laughs> movies as well. Before that Indiana Jones movie, he had done a few movies that were not huge hits, like The Color Purple. I, I mean, maybe box office-wise, but like that was nominated for several Oscars. Yeah, but it didn't win any. And Always, which was right. pretty much a miss. Empire of the Sun also, I think, like was not considered a hit. Yeah, there was some like late 80s very early 90s flops on spielberg's part Mm -hmm. definitely he got it because also he had a proven track record with technology and they knew that this was going to be like a hugely technical movie to pull off and none of the other guys had done anything that felt similar like spielberg hadn't even done jaws which was like a giant monster creature Mm -hmm. so pre-production on jurassic park began two years and one month before production the film was not greenlit right away so a lot of the people who were working on it were working on it for free at the time. The artists, he brought in a lot of the main collaborators right away. He wanted as much of the movie to be live action as possible. So he got Stan Winston involved to do the puppets, practical effects, and special effects makeup. And he's like a Hollywood legend. He had won an Oscar for Aliens and was about to win another one for Terminator 2. He won Best Visual Effects Oscar and Best Makeup Oscar for Terminator 2. Rick Baker did all the makeup for Coming to America. Yep. Well, and also all of John Carpenter's movies. Yeah, so they decided to build, like, a full-size T-Rex, or actually, like, a few full-size different versions of his parts, and they built, basically, a flight simulator in order to control him, because it was the only way that they could get all this to work. So while they were working on the actual full-size dinosaurs, Phil Tippett started working on GoMotion that they were primarily going to use for the Velociraptors. And then Dennis Muren of ILM drastically changed that by winning an Oscar for Terminator 2 as well. For The computer effects were very talked about from that movie. And that is what convinced Spielberg that he could do a lot of the dinosaur effects computer-generated. Like, they had started the movie thinking that they weren't going to do any of that. So, like, the stampede sequence was added with all the Gallimimes misses like he had wanted that scene but he wasn't sure how to do it with any other way suddenly that was a viable scene there was a lot of like puppets that they had built for the raptors and stuff that had to be scrapped but they actually kept phil tippet in because computer animation was so new and they were doing something that wasn't supposed to be like liquid metal but this these were animals and so they kept him as like a consultant to the animators to make them look more realistic so he's credited as a dinosaur wrangler something <laughs> like that. So in the middle of all this, like there was so much preparation to be done that Spielberg went off and directed Hook while everyone was <laughs> making all these dinosaurs. Time. Yeah. He's like, I've got six months to kill. I might as well make a Peter Pan movie. <laughs> I'll go hooking. Michael Crichton wrote the first drafts of the screenplay, but he already knew that he wanted another writer to polish it and work on the characters and stuff. One of Spielberg's problems with the early script was that it jumped right into the action rather than building up which is funny now because i think jurassic park is so famous for it's like very long build up and really like really building the world before it jumps into like dinosaurs attacking people well that happens in the very first scene yes. but in a very good teasy way yeah it's like a jaws like you don't see yeah much of the raptor at all like you don't really know what's going on unless you know yeah but that was a good way to start it 
with some excitement and some sort of dinosaur action mm-hmm. without showing too much and then going a pretty long time before you actually see more dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, so the next screenwriter hired was Malia Scotch Marmo, who had worked <laughs> Excuse with... Excuse me? I don't believe you. <laughs> Malia? Malia Scotch Marmo, maybe? Malia, who worked on Hook with Spielberg, completely started over and cut Ian Malcolm's character from... What? The story. Forbid. Have it forbid. Yes. And was mainly working on, like, deepening the character. She tried to make Alan Grant and Ian, like, one character, basically, so that Alan Grant would be more interesting. Spielberg read it and said it was a miss. (laughs) (laughs) For Spielberg? Yeah, I was about to say, I bet he did say it in a very nice way. Thank you for your efforts. (laughs) Yeah. So, obviously, that was, like, really hard for her, but she accepted it and then, like, continued to, like, read later drafts and, like, provide notes. David Kep was the last writer hired. Hmm. He was fresh off of Death Becomes Her. Ooh. And he made the decision to cut a couple of big set pieces, including a river raft sequence with the T-Rex in water, and Lex riding a baby Triceratops. God. They had actually built the baby Triceratops already, and just never were able to use it. Because all these effects were going to be so expensive, Spielberg knew that he had to cast the movie really cheaply. So he was interested in Richard Dreyfuss and Kurt Russell for Alan Grant, but he knew that they would be too expensive. Hmm. He did approach William Hurt, but William Hurt said no. He doesn't want to be in that kind of movie. A Spielberg movie? I mean... But that sounds like a very William Hurt thing to say. I will not be in your movie. I don't know about 93 but like literally like every single actor in the world is in the post because they're like i want to be in a spielberg movie give me one line yeah exactly <laughs> mm-hmm. so sam neill was unavailable for the start date but they d- ended up just pushing it back so that he could be our dr alan grant Laura Dern, Spielberg also had a hard time, like, seeing her in that role because he saw her as so, like, delicate and feminine. But then you kind of realize that that made sense even for this character because she's not, like, a Ripley or a... Vasquez. Sarah Connor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Definitely not a Vasquez. (laughs) It was filmed in Hawaii because Spielberg wanted to stay in a nice hotel. (laughs) He, He was like... Getting up there in age, and he was like, if I was younger, I probably would have gone to, like, South America and, like, roughed it, but nope. (laughs) I want to stay in a hotel on the weekends. That's hilarious. So the actual production began on August 24th, 1992, in Kauai. Principal photography lasted 70 days, 12 days ahead of schedule, and then during post-production, he went to Krakow to make Schindler's List. (laughs) So basically any idle moment, he would go, you know, make some other very important some movie. Some entire other movie. He's yeah. like really famous for making like two movies a year that are very different. Mm-hmm. And often at a time. Like seriously, because yeah. he was doing the same thing, I think, with The Post. And he was like waiting. Ready Player One, probably. Yeah, I believe it was Ready Player One. And it was he wasn't even intending to make The Post. And the script got to him from like a first time writer. And it was like, well, you know, like this Ready Player One thing is taking so long. Uh, why not yeah he threw the post together and from the time he read the script to when the movie came out it was under a year yeah it was crazy quick turnaround and ready player one came out three months after the post so yeah it's really insane and i remember um minority report was the same year as catch me if you can and i think war of the worlds came out the same year as something kind of serious I can't no. remember what it was but he he does that a lot where he does it a lot it'll be a serious movie and a fun movie Mm mm-hmm Munich. Munich. Yeah, I think probably you're right. Munich. I think it was Munich. So, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting stories about the making of this movie and pre production and post production. I have an entire book here that I reread for this, but one of the really key things was getting the animal sounds right. 
Um, Spielberg was very adamant that these dinosaurs be animals and not, he wouldn't let them be referred to as monsters or creatures. He really wanted to show them as very different to what dinosaurs had been shown as before, which were these big, like, plodding lizards, kind of like a Godzilla figure. So they used real animal sounds so that people would be able to believe that these were animals and not just, like, a crazy monster. So for T-Rex, the sounds were elephant, alligator, penguin, tiger, and dog. Penguin? Mm-hmm. For the raptors, it was dolphins and geese. <laughs> as well as I can a, hear it. I can hear yeah, it. I can totally hear it. African crane, because they realized geese were incredibly vicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a goose bit me on the butt once. Geese are assholes. Like, no joke. Hold on to your butts. Because <laughs> <laughs> a goose is going to take them. And the Brachiosaurus was whales and donkey calls. The sounds of the dinosaurs were one of the first elements of the movie that leapt out to me, even the first time I was seeing it in the theater, just being, again, so absolutely blown away. Of course, no one has any idea of whether or not those were accurate or realistic portrayals of what sounds the dinosaurs would have made. But just the thrill of that experience of hearing it and how well the sound was mixed and designed was an aspect of that movie that I appreciated even the first time I saw it as a kid. Yeah, definitely. I I think that this time I was like very attuned to how much the dinosaurs were treated with respect and reverence, and they really did make an effort to not have them just be like killing machines. They were, they wanted the behavior of them to always be animal like. Like, he didn't want them to ever be doing anything that was just like, I'm attacking you because I'm attacking you. It's like the T Rex is doing this because he's hungry and confused. And, you know, and I think that really does check out when you watch the first movie. Just the first movie. <laughs> so, would you guys like to talk about this movie? <laughs> yes, finally, please. <laughs> So Jurassic Park was released on June 11th, 1993. That's The Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson was at the top of the charts. Along with Show Me Love by Robin S. and Bad Boys from The Cops. That was in the top of the charts, Yeah, that was on the charts a long time. Wait, the song Bad Boys, Bad Boys, yes. that song? Mm-hmm. Yes. That song? <laughs> yes, it was a chart-topping hit. Roseanne was the show with the highest ratings, and a couple weeks after Jurassic Park's debut, Lorena Bobbitt cut off her husband's penis. Not related. Well, maybe. Uh, Not if you don't want them to be. (laughs) (laughs) The movie cost $63 million. (laughs) Not very much. What would that be in today's dollars? Over $100 million? Yeah. It made $47 million on its opening weekend, which was very big at the time. Its total domestic gross was $357.1 million, and worldwide it made $1 billion. So it was a hit. What, uh, where does it rank nowadays in the box? Uh, you're going to tell me, aren't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it is the 27th highest grossing film of all time worldwide, the 28th domestic, and if you adjust it for inflation, it's the 17th right now. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say. Yeah, that makes a lo- the seventeenth makes a lot more sense because even in the early nineties, like a billion dollars is worth considerably more now. Yes. Yeah. That was. It was huge. Yeah, that's a juggernaut of a movie. This was the biggest movie of the year, domestic and worldwide, uh, as well as the biggest opening weekend of the year. It was number one at the box office, followed by Cliffhanger at number two. It was nominated for three Oscars, and it won three of them. I'm surprised that's it, but I guess I'm surprised it's more technical. <laughs> I, Maybe there's still time for it to be nominated for best, best picture. picture. No, I'm surprised it wasn't more technical because I feel like it would. I don't know what won, but 
visual effects, sound, sound editing. Those are the ones that won. Those are literally the ones that won. (laughs) Like you were reading the ballot. (laughs) I guess I do know. Reviews were good, but kind of mixed, actually. It has a 68 on Metacritic. That's crazy. So a couple of the reviews that are indicative of the general critical response. Mike Clark's USA Today review says, Spielberg's must-see is so wondrous at depicting things that go crunch in the night that its human characterizations and pokey exposition seem astonishingly half-hearted. On a people level, Park isn't Jaws, but on a jolt level, oh yes it is. Ebert gave it three stars, and so even though that's not a bad review, what he said about the movie is really echoing a lot of other critics, including many who didn't care for the film. So Ebert says, The movie delivers all too well in its promise to show us dinosaurs. We see them early and often, and they are indeed a triumph of special effects artistry. But the movie is lacking other qualities that it needs even more, such as a sense of awe and wonderment and strong human story values. What the fuck? (laughs) This is awe the movie, like... (laughs) There is no more awe than I can think of other than that scene. With the brontosaurus? Yeah. Okay, now I want scientists to resuscitate Roger Ebert and bring him back to life (laughs) just so that we can argue with him on this movie. But I saw that argument in other reviews, too. It's insane. And people were really harping on the characters of this movie. I want to go back in time and show them Jurassic Park 3 first (laughs) and then show them Jurassic Park. (laughs) Like, guys, you don't know where this is headed. (laughs) I mean, I feel like now, like, this is a movie that would be held up as, like, a shining example <laughs> of how to put characters in an action movie, but not, like, give them, like, huge plots that are going to take up a lot of the time. These characters are scientists, and they're believable scientists, which I think is mm-hmm. not true in most movies where people are scientists. They're not like Denise Richards in the James Bond movie. The literal example I had already, like, thought <laughs> of. Jones. So what did you guys think about Jurassic Park? Eh. Just kidding, it's great still. (laughs) My only complaint is that I've seen this movie so many times, and very recently, because I just bought it on Blu-ray like a year or so ago, and I watched it in 3D recently in the theater when it was like out in 3D, that like I've just seen it so many times that I kind of wish that I did have more of a break so that I could kind of forget some stuff, and so I could have that fresh experience again. Mm-hmm. But I am shocked that anybody would have a critical response to it, because I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it's like 92 or something like that on Rotten Tomatoes, and I was like... What 8% of critics would be like, eh, not worth your time? A lot of them. It's crazy. I think that this time I knew how great it was. And I was like, let's see if I can find something that I don't like. And there's maybe like one thing, maybe two, that I was like, oh, that doesn't really work so well. It is fantastic. I think it totally holds up as a great entertaining movie with well-built characters that you care about. Great special effects still. It is just fantastic. I consider the characters in this movie some of my favorite blockbuster movie characters ever. And unlike the two of yous, I had had a ton of time since the last time I saw Jurassic Park, especially the first movie. Almost the whole thing was fresh for me. Oh, wow. But even those moments that I remembered played so perfectly now. When did you last see it, Seth? To be quite honest, I don't remember the last time I had seen the original movie since... At least since I had lived in New Orleans. So that would have been before college. Oh, wow. Yeah. <gasps> it had been, no, like it had been a good like 15 years I'm or more. Shocked. Or more. <laughs> the lead three characters of this movie are played by Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. 
not only are these actors some of my favorite actors of all time, but they all became some of my favorite actors of all time because of this movie. The three of them create such a great frame around which to hang the story of this movie. In retrospect, I almost wish the kids were not as central to the movie as they are. I agree with you, Chris, that this is kind of a kid's movie and almost a fairy tale in the Brothers Grimm sense where things do get very gory and very scary. But I think the scientist characters played by Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum, not only did I just love them as characters, but I loved the fact that they were scientists. As a kid, I was super into not only dinosaurs, but spiders and snakes and sharks and And I just loved reading about the ways that animals lived and also the people who studied animals and like the scientists who would dedicate their lives to learn about these aspects of the world. I loved so much that the lead characters of this movie were scientists and that they were approaching the story problems of the movie entirely from a scientific perspective and point of view. But I also loved additionally that Jeff Goldblum played this character Ian Malcolm who was a scientist but also a total asshole sarcastic dick and also like super hot super sexy the rock star cool guy like a rock star type he's like a big flirt he's a huge flirt but specifically a rock star and the idea of a rock star scientist blew my mind as a kid almost as much as seeing dinosaurs on a screen he's a chaotician he's a yeah exactly Especially rewatching it this time, having had so much distance, I really appreciated the extent to which this really made me more in awe of scientists and of science as its own kind of pursuit. I still think the movie Beyond holds up. I think much like Twister was, like seeing it is a stark reminder of how far standards have fallen in terms of action and fantasy movies. Rampage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even just seeing this on a, you know, relatively big home TV, just a couple speaker sound, watching this movie is still absolutely fucking exhilarating at a lot of points. And not just because of action movie thrills and scares, even though those work well too, but also because this movie really makes you get into the minds of these characters and follow along. And so everything that risks their lives really draws you in. I think one of the best things you can say about this movie is that you don't don't want to just fast forward to where the dinosaurs are like i'm actually interested in the scenes that the characters are just talking like, oh yes because they're good characters it's good dialogue you care about what they're going through or what but you also care about scientific ideas that yeah. they make interesting in this movie which is not Absolutely. something easy to make cinematic i think there's a couple of movies where i'm like okay let's fast forward over this talky part and get to the action part and i don't feel the need to do that for jurassic park and i often feel like i want to fast forward the action parts and get to the talking <laughs> But not with this movie. (laughs) I actually had a hard time watching this movie again. Just too many happy tears. (laughs) Well, so I watched all of these movies, and I started with the third one, then went to the second one, and then watched this one. And did you watch each of them backwards? I did not. No. (laughs) Arguably, it might have improved at least one of them. (laughs) I wanted to savor this so much that I was always like, ooh, I don't know if tonight is the night that I can really put this on, because... 
I have seen this movie, like Becky, so many times, and fairly recently, at least a couple of times too, that like I wanted it to be special, but I also was like aware that I was going into it as a critic more so this time than I ever have before. I was a little afraid to find things that were not good or or whatever. I finally like made myself do it. I turned out the lights, I lit candles. (laughs) (laughs) Were they T Rex candles? (laughs) I had a very intimate moment with my Jurassic Park. (laughs) It was the closest thing to seeing it in a theater that I had had in a while because it was dark and and I was just like fully paying attention to the movie. I wasn't like doing anything else. And yeah, it just grabbed me all over again. I was like into it from moment one to the end. And there's not a dull moment really, even though there's a lot of down moments. There's it's not action packed exactly, especially the first hour has very little action and is mostly talking. But like, yeah, everything completely captivated my interest. I felt like this movie was spiritually similar to like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones movies where there's a sense of wonder about magical things that aren't real in reality, but we kind of wish were real. Mm-hmm. And there's like a romanticism about mystery in the past. It felt like a s- spiritual successor to those movies. Definitely. But again, touching on my immediately previous point, I think the most spiritual characters are the scientists. Mm-hmm. So in this movie and in this story, the character who calls out the real evil that's going on is Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum's character. Basically, from the moment he appears on screen, he starts questioning the motives and and the greed behind the whole concept of Jurassic Park to begin with. And ultimately, he's the character who's proven to be absolutely right about everything. I hate being right all the time. Yeah, Yeah, but I just love, traditionally in movies, the character with the spiritual bent is the one who's religious. Mm -hmm. You know, even in a less literal sense where they're just like the person who prays or the person who's mystical or whatever, all three of those characters I find very distinguishable from each other. And each of them kind of has a slightly different approach to the way they do science. But ultimately, each of them is carrying a bigger perspective with them and a wider view of what is actually going on. I can't think of a single movie that has more science than this does. A lot of movies, a lot of them are ripoffs of this. They have scientist characters, but they're usually there to like spout like one scientific theory and then run away. Exposition. They're there to give exposition. Annihilation had a lot of scientists in it. Okay, but... I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> I want to talk about a character I was very fascinated with, John Hammond. I think that a lesser movie would have made him very greedy, But I thought it was really subtle and just a very smart way of creating this character. You know, he already has a ton of money, so it's not about money for him. He he has enough money to bring dinosaurs back to life. So money is not like the issue. And it's not even really about power. I'm sure there's that's a little bit of it, but I love the scene where he's talking to Flora Dern, like maybe three fourths into the movie about when he was not rich and like emigrated to America. He started a flea circus. Oh, mommy, can't you see the fleas? (laughs) He, you know, was basically creating this like imaginary world for people that they could like live in this magical world. And he was kind of doing that again, but this time he wanted it to be real. And I felt like that was a great 
insight into his character to show people something spectacular and that his drive was to actually give something to the world and give this great entertainment and this just like extraordinary experience that no one has ever done before. I just love how before we even meet Hammond, we learn so much about him. Is it Costa Rica or somewhere there, like where they discovered the Amber? I think it was the lawyer that says Hammond hates inspections. They slow everything down. And he's always saying, Spare, we spared no expense. We spared no expense. But there's so many times in the movie where it's obvious they did spare an expense. They got really cheap labor with uh, Nedri and she brings up the fact that they have poisonous plants in the lobby. They look nice, but they're poisonous. Even when he comes in with his helicopter, he's blowing everything away and the people on the ground are like shouting up at him to like stop. But it's another example of him not having any true respect for science. And there's examples of this all through the movie of this character and and him not even realizing um, what he's doing is is wrong. I'm going to slightly take issue with how you phrased it, because I do think he's greedy. I do think he is also an idealist. But I think with the amount of money that he's made, the way that that filters into the way that he approaches the world is he doesn't give a shit what the like end results and after effects are. He cares, like you're saying, about being the first to get to that finish line to be able to create that thing and share it with the world. Well, he believes in his vision, I think. So the character of Hammond in the book, I don't know if you remember, but he is much more like greedy, more unlikable. Like he's not really a sympathetic character in the book and he dies at the end and in a like kind of a nasty huh. way and so the book is very clearly like set against him Spielberg wanted Hammond to be more sympathetic because I think in so many ways Hammond is a proxy for Spielberg someone who's creating the mm. spectacle that no one's ever seen before absolutely and that he has had a lifetime of doing this as well. And that's exactly what Spielberg had done at this point. So there's enough criticism of him, I think, in the movie where he's not totally an admirable character. And in fact, he's like wrong. I think he's the villain. Honestly, I think he's the villain, but I think that's part of the genius of this movie is that Spielberg makes the villain of this movie also a sweet old grandpa. Mm. Yeah. And and you meet his grandkids and like really, really care for them and, and care for his even though for them. He's the villain. He's try- not trying to do bad. He's trying to do good, which I think is true of a lot of the best villains is they have... Like, they believe in their ideas. Yeah, that's totally. what makes him such a well-written character. I guess villain is wrong, maybe, like, antagonist. Like, he's the one yeah. that puts all this in motion and it all goes to shit. I like that he's the one that has the strongest arc. If he died, I think that would just be too easy. But he has to see the mess he's made. Mm-hmm. He has to survive to see the mess he's made. Well, yeah, I think this movie has a lot of really interesting ideas that are pretty explicitly put out but one is like nature versus capitalism Mm. obviously Hammond represents capitalism and a lot of the scientists they represent kind of like the voice of nature saying like nature doesn't do what you want it to do it can't be controlled it will find ways to evolve life finds a way and with the capitalism I think is this kind of god complex of like what it means to try and create something or try and control something that really shouldn't be under anyone's control and yeah I find these ideas really interesting and the fact that they're actually discussed in depth and different characters have different perspectives on that. That brings to mind like one of my favorite scenes in the movie that's an entirely dialogue scene where Hammond and the three scientists are literally arguing about the ethics of having a concept of a Jurassic Park. And even beyond the ethical implications of bringing dinosaurs back, like they talk about how humans and dinosaurs had 65 million years of never being together and nature selected all of these species to not exist in this moment. 
And we absolutely have no place, either in science or any spiritual realm, making the choice to countervail that. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. What I found was funny this time around watching this was I was thinking about Hammond only needed to make one dinosaur. And if there was literally a dinosaur in real world, you could still like sell tickets for so much money to people to go see one dinosaur. And he made like thousands. Yeah, (laughs) I just found that really funny. I was like, you just needed to make one Stegosaurus and people will literally flock from every corner of the earth to come see it. Yeah, but I mean, Disneyland is overkill at this point. And Disneyland used to be like one dinosaur. And now it's like everything I know. And all over the world and so that it's very natural that they don't stop at one they just keep building and building and building it has to be bigger and bigger and bigger it's also a nice metaphor for hollywood which like they they can't leave well enough alone like, well and also a metaphor for capitalism totally yeah right well then you wouldn't have also dinosaur tax or the plot of the movie i just thought it was funny because i was like in real life if there's one dinosaur like somewhere in like india then like all the tourism would go to india to see this one dinosaur well, but again, I, I I also think it is kind of like an industry kind of critique as well. Like, because this movie, I think, has a lot of moments where it mocks the very commercialization that the movie and the franchise would go on to have. Like, there's literally a whole slow-moving montage panning around Jurassic Park's gift store where you see all of the lunchboxes and T-shirts and stuff, T-Rexes. And I mean, those have are... the exact logo of the movie. Right, too. that have the yeah. actual no logo of the movie. Differentiation That was, that was pretty there. meta. It yeah. was so it was so meta, but it was all it also played so well in the context of the actual story of it. I like I, I really liked that touch. Um and it has an awareness of itself that is not that doesn't knock you out of the experience of actually watching the movie, which is a hard balance to have in any kind of movie, but in a blockbuster that like takes so much skill and talent. Yeah, it doesn't feel winky at all. In that panning, they actually have the book, The Making of Jurassic Park, <laughs> listed by the authors of the book, uh, Don Shea and Jody Duncan. And the book is about the making of the movie, but, <laughs> but the, the movie, book, it's about the park. yeah, I guess like yeah. you're supposed to assume it's about the park. And so that is like so meta <laughs> and a joke that like most people wouldn't get unless they had this book, which I did. But like, I've always really appreciated that. And just, yeah, it's almost this weird like prophecy because like they didn't necessarily know this movie was going to work. I mean, it's a pretty good bet, a dinosaur movie, but also like a lot of things could have gone wrong. Absolutely. So the fact that they were like already kind of declaring it this hit and like, yeah, we're just going to use the same logo because we know this will work. And it's a, it's a bold choice, I think. I think a big part of why it works so well is because it's directed by someone who is such a master of balancing suspense and surprise. I think Spielberg is a big part of why you stick through those dialogue scenes to get to the crazy scary part, because you know that he's going to build suspense and he's going to use that to reveal character. He was really involved from moment one and had so many ideas, and so many of the good ideas in this movie are his, that you just do appreciate him. He's like, kind of like a master at this like he has this reputation for a reason and it's because like he can pull something like this together and spend years on it when you think of an image from jurassic park like what do you think of uh the t-rex foot coming down in the mud 
The <laughs> T Rex totally. foot. The when dinosaurs ruled the earth yeah, with the banner. The, the banner falling down Absolutely at the end, the, the roar, the jello, the jello, the I would say that just that shot of the water, the mm-hmm. cup of Cupping, water, like shaking is so iconic, and I'm sure it's been parodied so in a bunch of other movies too. Um, it was even kind of like uh, alluded to in like the Lost World and probably other Jurassic Park movies where you see like a puddle and the shaking. One indelible image from this movie is. After Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum's character is hurt. He's like (laughs) reclining shirtlessly in repose. There's so many shots in this movie that are so iconic. Spielberg knows exactly what he's doing. They're like beautiful, beautifully composed shots. And especially that shot when we first see, is it a Brachiosaurus or a Brontosaurus? Brontosaurus didn't exist. It's a Brachiosaurus. (laughs) Where, you know, we first see the scientists seeing the dinosaurs and then we pan up to see the shot of that dinosaur. And it is still so moving, even though I've seen this a million times. It was the best way to do that. Well, and and specifically to that setup of that shot, it works so well because for most of that scene, you're focused on the faces of the scientists. The first thing you get is each of their individual reactions and their sense of debilitating awe in the face of this thing. It sells that so, so well before you ever see any of the dinosaurs at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I would give Laura Dern an Oscar for just that face. (laughs) I would give Laura Dern every Oscar for every face she's made. Agreed. But again, I can picture it right now yeah. <laughs> no true you can though and, and that that is, is it, saying is, something is the glasses she takes the glasses. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, but and that's yeah. saying something that again in a movie that has some of the most awe-inspiring shots of these gigantic animals that like these human moments are also some of the most memorable things of it yeah i mean spielberg is very known for his spielberg face uh, yes, reaction shots it is in a lot of movies where you see somebody reacting to something off screen and this is the most i think this is like the (laughs) pinnacle of that and yeah it's just like it works it's cheesy in a way if you look back on it and look at all these things but it's also not cheesy like when you're watching the movie it still completely works even though it's this big iconic moment and even though it's kind of funny that you could like look into all of his other movies basically and find other versions of this kind of reaction shot but no it's still totally iconic and the john williams score at that moment just works so well with that scene but just in general it'd be really tough to say which john williams score is best but I think it's this one. Mm -hmm. So John Williams was the first film composer whose work I listened to separate from the movie. And so he was really also the first composer I really grew to appreciate for film composition specifically, because I was so into classical music and only like classical music and Broadway and stuff before that. John Williams' score is an utterly essential element of why this movie is so great, right up alongside the sound design and the sounds that the dinosaurs make. It's not just the kind of like sweeping nature of the score but just the way that it's integrated into the rest of the movie and that was intentional on spielberg's part he had john williams work with the sound department which is rare like usually the composer does their work separately and same with all the special effects like all those teams were working together usually it's like you take the sequence you take this but like everyone was like always working together and always collaborating to make the same movie which i think is a big problem with a lot of movies that come out today is that like these people are off doing this and there's no one with vision like talking to everyone and making sure that everyone is on the same page but he had such a clear vision for what he was trying to do with this movie which was you know make it feel real he knew that it wouldn't work if the people weren't reacting to the 
dinosaurs and that people needed to feel a connection to them as animals. So building the awe through those characters is a good way to make the audience feel that way too. Like this is really his vision in so many ways. And thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Steven Spielberg. (laughs) I mean, but literally at a certain point, I just stopped taking notes because this movie was too fucking perfect. Yeah. I mean, I was like, I basically just wrote capital letters like Laura Dern. (laughs) every movie of hers yes whether she's in it or not it's so good but like the t-rex scene where the t-rex attacks the cars like a lot of it is without music yeah no score just hear the t-rex you know stepping over the fence crunching on the trucks roaring the rain rain. and i can hear that right now i can hear the thud of his footprint i can hear the sound that the fence makes that scene won the oscar for you know sound design That entire sequence is so fantastically directed and choreographed. The choreographed, just the, the um, just the combination of like computer imagery with physical, you know, parts of the T Rex that were really there. You like forget. It's easy to forget that dinosaurs don't really exist. <laughs> like, absolutely, you have to like remind yourself, like, oh yeah, they're not real, because <laughs> it's so well done. And I, I don't know about you guys, but like. That's there's that whole section where like the car and the tension and Ian Malcolm and the and the flash uh, light thingy the, the flare and then like falling over the edge and falling in the tree and then it cuts the T Rex howls and it cuts to Samuel L. Jackson and I went because oh. <laughs> like you don't even realize you're like not even breathing you were holding yes. onto your butt <laughs> <laughs> but like I don't know if you like had that too but it's like oh yeah <laughs> I didn't oh breathe. I absolutely <laughs> did absolutely. I do want to give a lot of credit to Michael Creighton as well, because a lot of that is from the book. Hmm. And a lot of, like, the great set pieces are actually from the book. Like, when I was, like, doing research for this, I was like, well, I'll read a few pages. And I, like, wanted to read the whole entire thing. I went through to, like, different pieces and probably read for, like, an hour different sections. And it's really terrifying. It's actually very, very scary. And this movie is too. I mean, in some ways I said it's a kid's movie, but also to like put two children in danger in this way and like have this like giant monster head like coming into the car and like almost eating children is like also very, very dark and scary. Well, they're good actors. And also they they do have like cuts and blood on them Mm -hmm. too. So it's not like they are totally unscathed. And I wanted to ask, wait, so were the grandkids in the book... Yes. Were they? Okay. I think Lex was younger, though. Yeah. So Tim was a bookworm, and he was older. Lex was younger and just kind of a brat. And so Spielberg cast Joseph Mazzello first because he had met him uh, for Hook, and he was too young to be in Hook. But he was like, I really want this kid to be in something. So he wanted him for Timmy. 
And then he realized, like, if he cast Joseph Mazzello, then the girl would have to be super young to be younger. So he was like, oh, well, let's make her older. So that was, like, the subplot of her, like, kind of having a crush on him. And none of the stuff where she's doing computer stuff is in the book. So I really liked that it gave her an essential role in this beyond so, just, like, yeah, you know, like, being I- scared. I really do like the computer moment where she ends up being the person to, like, help save the day. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted her to die. What? I really wanted her. I wanted her to get eaten the whole no, movie. No, he had a crush on her. She was one of my blondes. <laughs> I hated that character so much. What? I hated her fucking screaming. Oh, I... I still hated her rewatching this movie. I absolutely... I. Hated her. Hated? Hated. That is not too strong a word for my emotional reaction to that. The only part of this movie that I thought was eye-rolly was the computer hacking part. Was like, all right, that doesn't hold up. (laughs) That's also like a thing I would come to expect for any representation of like computer wizardry back in that time period. Just having that in the movie, because it was in the mid 90s where it's like, ooh, we don't know about computers. The computer's good or bad, or we can just hack into them. I just felt like that was a little like, all right, that's a little dated. I just liked that. Um, Is Jeff Goldblum sexy? Yes. And he still is. Mm. He seems like a Benedict Cumberbatch kind of guy where you're like, is he sexy? Is he not? Okay, (laughs) here's the thing. And I I thought of this word watching this movie, and I looked it up to make sure that I was thinking of the right word. So Malcolm Malicious? Close. Um, The word for Malcolm is louche. L-O-U-C-H-E. What does that mean? So, And that means unconventional and slightly disreputable in an attractive way. Oh. Uh, And this is your word of the day. Welcome to Jurassic (laughs) University. (laughs) I think I thought he was... I think I now find that character on the sexy side as an adult. No, totally. But not as a kid. I wasn't like, ooh. As a yeah. kid, I was like, who is that weird, gross guy? Like, you're not JTZ. <laughs> no. No, no, no. I, and I would totally agree with that, actually. It's like, I only find him remotely sexy as an adult. I think I was just too into Lex and Ellie <laughs> to consider wow. Dr. Ian Malcolm. But it is kind of weird in retrospect looking at him with like his shirt off and it's like, is that what they're even going for here? I don't <laughs> He's know. loose. He's very loose. loose. While we're on the subject of Jeff Goldblum, I really like some of the characterization of him just as this like player. Like one of his best lines, I think, is I'm always on the lookout for a future ex Mrs. Malcolm, which is just such a douchey so, thing to say. He has so many great lines in this movie. He's a big flirt. He's so well developed. He's kind of like handsome in like an alternative way, rock star looking, but he's a mathematician, chaotician who is obviously educated, smart. He's probably maybe like a professor or something. He is very intuitive about nature and it's just kind of remarkable how well they created this character and how much Jeff Goldblum contributed to the performance of this character of making him well-rounded. Yeah, like, you can't imagine anyone else playing that character, like, and not being ridiculous. Yeah, I could not imagine another actor on Earth playing that character. Like, I don't even want to try because I'm, like, trying to come up with people and it's just, it's hurting me. (laughs) I really love Alan Grant and what he goes through. And it's very subtle where him and Ellie, she wants kids, he doesn't. And they're together, but they're never, like, mushy-mushy. You know, they just seem like a very relaxed, comfortable relationship. Like, they almost feel like they're kind of, like, on again, off again or something. Like I was going to say they feel married. Like, they're just comfortable with each other, but she wants to have kids. He doesn't want it. And then all of a sudden, in this movie, he is saddled with being this parental 
pivotal role that he never asked for. And by the end of the movie, the last shot of the movie has him like hugging the two kids on either side, giving Ellie a look. But it's done in such a nice, subtle way that he's never like, ugh, why did I have to get stuck with you kids? You know, like, ugh. (laughs) Those Um, damn kids. Those damn kids. Like, there's a scene where he first meets Timmy and Timmy is like talking nonstop about dinosaurs and It's so great. I love that moment. And he like opens the door of the truck, puts Timmy in, closes the door, goes to the next car. You know, like... And then Lex is there being like, she's that I should ride with you because it'd be good for you. Yeah. So it's like, you know that Ellie has kind of like engineered this in a way too, which is really funny. Yeah, it's just great filmmaking. There's conflict where he's like, oh, I got to be in this uncomfortable situation with these kids that has nothing to do with dinosaurs. It's just, I'm stuck with these kids. I'm very uncomfortable being a father figure. And now shit has hit the fan and I have to take care of these kids and learn what it takes to be a father. But none of that is spelled out. You just see it happen. And I think it's really interesting that Alan Grant's instincts are to protect the kids. Like he doesn't have to get out of the car and distract the T-Rex, but he does. And he's the one who like supposedly doesn't even like kids and successfully does that. And then Ian Malcolm flexed it up by like not doing the flare the right way. So he's like kind of trying to do it. But like he wasn't the first one who's like, I got to mm-hmm. save the kids, even though he has kids of his own. Even though Alan Grant says he doesn't like kids, he automatically has this sort of paternal instinct to try and save them. While like the lawyer just went like running off and he left us. He, he left, left us. us. <laughs> That's in the book, by the way, too. <laughs> Alex, listen, listen, Alex, I'm right here. I'm gonna look after you, but I have to go help you, brother. So I want you to stay right here and wait for me. He left us. He left us. But that's not what I'm gonna do. And I think that it's also a really brilliant thing to insert into this movie that there's a conflict over children because this movie is so much about the circle of life and bringing things to life it really fits in with the theme of life finds a way that like life found a way for him to have this paternal experience even though like he wants nothing to do with that well and also of course kids being the perfect epitome of what you can create but ultimately not control (laughs) (laughs) true I thought there was a great detail that I did not notice until a few viewings ago. When they are in the helicopter, when they're first arriving at Jurassic Park, there's some turbulence or something, and Grant does not have the right seatbelt. Like, he has two female ends, and he literally ties the seatbelts together so that he can be protected (laughs) because two females it's alluding to the fact that female dinosaurs are able to like find a way to make it work oh very clever wow yeah i did not notice that i think mike my husband pointed that out a few viewings ago and i was like i can't believe i never noticed that but it's definitely there for a reason clever girl yeah very clever girl my husband (laughs) (laughs) i say that about him a lot There's another really tiny detail that I wanted to mention is just Hammond's cane, which has like the mosquito mm-hmm. in the amber. I just think is like a brilliant way mm-hmm. to visualize like the fact that he's like so proud of himself. It's this very like egocentric thing. It's a good villain like Right. Yeah. There's a lot of ways in which the character and costume design and all that production design really like elevates things. Like I don't think that there's very much description of Hammond or Malcolm's physical appearance in the book, but like the fact that they dress him like a rock star and the fact that they make Hammond dressed in all white and he just looks so benign but is also the person who's basically responsible for lots of people dying maybe it's just because I had so many action figures but all of their outfits are iconic like Ellie's (laughs) pink shirt like I know exactly what she's wearing 
at every moment. Like, it's yeah. just, it's seared into my brain. What do we think about Nedry? <laughs> he's not very nice. <laughs> I guess he's also the villain. He's the real, he's like the direct antagonist. Yeah, I think it works really well that there's a reason that this happens and it's because of him. And again, it's because of greed. It's not just the greed of creating this place in the first place, but then his own greed causes him to like betray the park, shut off all this stuff as kind of careless as Hammond might be in some ways. Like he's way more careless and way more selfish and just like basically doesn't care if everything goes to hell like while he gets off the island. So I thought that that worked really well as like part of the theme of money kind of corrupting and like I thought the computer stuff with him was pretty credible and also I mean in general I think this movie is very convincing that everything in it that happens would happen the way that it does like for an action movie. I feel, I feel like it checks out. Yeah, I agree. And especially rewatching it, I liked how they gave his character grounding for why he does that betrayal. And it totally makes sense. And, and it really comes across with how many other corners are apparently cut in the pursuit of making this park happen as quickly as possible. I think Nedry has a line about how he bid for the part. He like probably bid the lowest amount, like all work here for yes. this small yes. amount. And Hammond took him up on it, which is another example of him not sparing every expense yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it doesn't sound like he necessarily knows people as well as he knows like attractions also i just wanted to say that i think it's really fascinating that these characters don't just happen to be here like they're brought here by him to clear the park and that's what they have this reason to be picking apart the park too they're not just like debating just for the hell of it like that was what they were brought here to do and i i just think that that's a really interesting setup for why these characters would be here in the first place well and i like that that's the capitalist thought of what a scientist would do Mm -hmm. is oh they come here to you know run their numbers and then approve what i'm already planning to do and he gets them there with money too exactly like he says to fund their yeah to fund their own research but like that makes sense because scientists are always like desperate for money like it's hard to raise money for anything scientific so again like the theme of greed just kind of like comes through so many different aspects of this and even in the production design like the f- they often have like nature kind of spilling into the control room as like kind of a metaphor for like nature being uncontrollable. I also enjoy the cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> that Mr. was also DNA. <laughs> Spielberg's idea. It seems like the team at Animaniacs like <laughs> did some <laughs> cartooning for that. This movie's great. Give it a watch. <laughs> Unpredictability. Huh? Look at this. See? See? I'm right again. Nobody could have predicted that Dr. Grant would suddenly, suddenly jump out of a moving vehicle. Alan! Alan! There's uh, another example. <laughs> See, here I'm now by myself uh, uh, talking to myself. That's, that's chaos, dude. So, as discussed, Jurassic Park was a big hit. Spielberg not only like had the biggest movie of the year with Jurassic Park, but then he also won a bunch of Oscars for Schindler's List, which was widely acclaimed. So 93 is peak Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't make another movie again until The Lost World, which came out four years later. Wow, really? Oh, that's surprising. Yeah, he had done so much at this time and like it had gone so well that he just like kind of gave himself a break after this. And he, I mean, he was still doing How things. How dare he? He was still executive producing a lot of things. And I think this was about the time he was creating DreamWorks. So he wasn't like sitting on his ass. Like, I don't think Spielberg has ever 
stopped doing things. So Michael Crichton was obviously beset with requests for a sequel, so he did write one. Even though Jeff Goldblum's character dies in the first book. (laughs) He does sort of die, but I went back and read it again. And so what happens is it's, like, implied that he's, like, near death, and he, like, starts talking about, like, something like the other side or something. And then later someone, like, asks about Malcolm and... The other character just shakes his head. So they don't actually show Mm. him dying. And then in the second book, I think it might even be the first page, is like, like I was even assumed dead by some of the people who were there. So Mm. I think it checks out okay. Even though, yes, the original intent was that he was dead. But obviously, like, you can tell Crichton really likes Ian Malcolm. So it makes sense that he would want to bring him back for the sequel. So for the movie version, Spielberg was, like, really into making it, like, right away. Like, he had such a great experience with Jurassic Park. Everyone else wanted to come back. The only person who was replaced was the director of photography, Dean Cundy. He was replaced with Janusz Kaminski. Oh, wow. Who had just done Schindler's List with Spielberg and would continue to do almost every single Almost all of them, absolutely. Kaminski wanted to make this movie darker and much more like film noirish and shadowier. In the first one, they had been conscious of like keeping it brightly lit for most scenes because they wanted to like show off the effects. And now that they had done that, they wanted it to be a little more menacing and a little scarier in ways. There was a little concern that Spielberg might try and do everything with CGI for this movie, which luckily he did not. Kept the same mix of practical effects. Kids had written letters asking for Stegosaurus, so he was. <laughs> that was one of the first things he demanded be put in. That's so cute. <laughs> The main thrust of the book is the same in that there's a second island and that and that it stars Ian Malcolm and the Sarah Harding characters in there, but a lot of other things are actually different from the book. So this one is a bigger departure. And a lot of scenes from the first book were repurposed into this movie. Right, because I remember even hearing at the time from my friends who'd read all of his Jurassic books that like there were some scenes missing from Jurassic Park that were in the book, and there were some scenes from that that ended up in The Lost World. Mm-hmm. The copies. I- yeah, so that death scene with Peter Stormare is actually how John Hammond died in mm, the end oh, of yeah. the first book. Oh. oh, that makes a lot of sense. And the waterfall sequence was like taken from the book when they had the big river raft sequence. Oh, okay. So Goldblum signed on first. They obviously couldn't really make the movie without him or couldn't go forward with the story without knowing if he would do it. And he had zero reservations about coming back because he loved the first movie, like everything about it. I'm your daughter all the time, you know. You can't just abandon me whenever opportunity knocks. <sighs> Gee, that hurts my feelings. Did your mom tell you to say that? Dr. Malcolm, downstairs, please. Uh... You know, sweetie, I know we've had some hard going, but I feel like in the last couple of years, we've really kind of started to work things out. Hasn't it been better? Yeah, but I want you to crack on me a little bit, ground me or something, send me to my room. You never do any of that stuff. Well, well why would I? Because you turned out to be so uh, beautiful and brilliant and powerful and funny and generous. The queen, the goddess, my inspiration. Dr. Malcolm. This one was shot in Eureka, California, and New Zealand because they wanted, like, tall redwood trees and the feeling of, like, an ancient world. This movie had nine species of dinosaurs, including five that we'd already met in Jurassic Park, so four new ones. So The Lost World was released on May 23rd, 1997. Again, it was directed by Steven Spielberg, written by David Kep, starring Jeff Goldblum, Julianne Moore, Vince Vaughn, Vanessa Lee Chester, Richard Schiff, and Pete Postlethwaite. The budget was $73 million, so still pretty low by today's standards. The opening weekend was $72 million, so it basically made its budget back 
in a couple of days. The total domestic gross was 229 million. Worldwide was 618 million. So it wasn't quite as big of a hit on either of those levels, but it was still considered a big like summer blockbuster. I mean, Jurassic Park was like thriller. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like- hard to beat that. <laughs> The reviews were not quite as good as they were for Jurassic Park. It has a 59 on Metacritic, so about, like, 10 points lower. You're him, right? Excuse me? The scientist, the guy? I saw you on TV. I believed you. So you guys watched this movie as well, right? Yes. Yep. And I had seen it in the theater back in the day. Yeah, I did as well. Because why wouldn't you? <laughs> it was a Jurassic right. Park sequel. Did you like it back then? I think when I saw it, I liked it. Nowhere near Jurassic Park. But I think a little bit of that was the general feeling of Jurassic Park, dinosaurs. You know, I think when I saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull... I very much enjoyed it, and I think it was because I was very hungry for an Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) I think that was kind of a similar thing going on. Mm -hmm. What about you, Seth? I saw Lost World in the theaters. I, in fact, even saw Jurassic Park 3 in the theater as well. Like Becky, I think I enjoyed it mostly from the kind of hangover effect of how perfect Jurassic Park 1 was and how much I just loved seeing the dinosaurs, seeing human characters interact with them, seeing those particular characters in that world. I also know that it didn't stay with me like the first one had. And I definitely remember having a feeling of diminishing returns about it. So, Chris, did your parents let you see The Lost World in theaters? <laughs> they could not have stopped me. I saw Wild it. T-Rexes couldn't keep you away. I'm sure I saw it opening weekend. I ended up seeing it twice in theaters, just to make up for the first time. <laughs> I enjoyed the movie. Like, I really liked it, but in a different way than Jurassic Park. Like, Jurassic Park was iconic and, and perfect in my mind at the time, and kind of still. And this was, like, a movie that I enjoyed a lot and thought, did a pretty good job of living up to Jurassic Park as a sequel and, like, delivering the kinds of things I wanted to see. So my opinion of this movie is best described by me paraphrasing a line from the first movie. Spielberg was so preoccupied with whether or not he could do it that he didn't (laughs) stop to think if he should. (laughs) I hate this movie. (laughs) I really hate this movie. I think that's crazy. I think you're crazy. I hate this movie. It is not as bad as the third one, which I don't even know how much we're talking about the third one. This one didn't make me angry in the theater because I think there was such a high of like, I'm seeing a Jurassic Park movie again. The problems I have with it, like I didn't think about them until later. I was just kind of enjoying the ride. The third Jurassic Park in the theater, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I was very angry at the third one. Yeah, the third one, I was angry in theater. Yeah, I was angry at the third one. This one, I was angry this time watching it. And so a few years ago, my husband had never seen The Lost World. And I was like, oh, I remember it not being as good, but like, you know, it's still well directed. So we were going to, we watched half of it and could not get farther than that and my husband was like what is this and I was like yeah this is terrible and so I rewatched the whole thing for this podcast and I I just think it's just so bad I think it is a B movie disguised as an A movie I actually would totally agree with that 
especially that last characterization, like this feels so much more like a King Kong and Fay Ray type action adventure. Yeah, I mean, it, Malcolm's character, I think, bears very little resemblance to the one from the first one. Julianne Moore is by far one of my favorite actresses of all time, even separate from the fact that I think she's one of the most talented actresses of all time. And I don't know if it's just how underdrawn this character is or what, but I just, I, she just rings so hollow to me in this whole movie. And she's kind of expected to carry most of it. She's kind of the Ellen Sattler of this go round and i just don't think there's any there there to like get you interested in her stakes in the movie and it's also like the setup of the movie is like ian malcolm is jeff goldblum's character like thinking he's going to go like rescue her and her having this like fake feminist moment where she's like i don't need any man to come rescue me i'm gonna be fine and of course immediately is then thrown into life-altering peril at every turn how quickly that turn comes makes her seem so stupid and makes her seem so hopelessly naive as to what she's actually doing that it just starts off on such a wrong foot and I think never really has the character work to back it up. Um, I totally agree with everything. Yeah, like as far as the set pieces go, I think the scene in the truck is still pretty awesome. The trailer, like dangling. Yeah, the trailer, the rolling heavily up armored RV. It's weird because Julianne Moore's character is like a paleontologist, but in the course of this movie, she also seems to be kind of like a surgeon and a really good nurse. She studies predators as well. So she's been in like lion. Mm-hmm. Not hunting them, but like working with observing them. with them, and yeah, all that. Um, she's kind of like a Diane Fossey, I guess, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I got a whiff of that, but again, I just don't think there's any effort put to drawing a character underneath that to really bolster it. So, really, ultimately, this movie played to me like it was ripping off Aliens. Because I think it does pretty much the same kind of thing that Aliens does in trying to make Ripley like a mother figure. I think Julianne Moore is cast into the role of being a mother to this baby T-Rex because one of the kind of sub many subplots of this movie that take forever to intersect is that these like big game hunter assholes are working for the company that owns Jurassic Park and they come to this secondary island in the hopes of kind of you know some of them want to like do sport hunting and take down a T-Rex and they use this baby T-Rex that's been born and growing up in Jurassic Park they use it as bait for the big T-Rex and in the course of doing it they injure it and Julie and Moore's character like takes the the baby T-Rex into this trailer truck thing to fix its broken leg. That sets up this huge action set piece where both of the baby T-Rex's parent T-Rexes come and try to basically throw the whole thing off a cliff. And I think that's very effective and very tense, but again it just doesn't ring as true to me on any level but the roller coaster ride because the characters aren't drawn to the same depth. So don't feel the same level of real actual fear that they're going to lose their lives. I mean, I don't strongly disagree with any of your points. Like, I think there's a lot of contrivances in setting the story up and getting everyone to the island. Like, the daughter sneaking into the van 
which is actually from the book. And also, like, Sarah Harding having already gone to the island and him having to go rescue her. But at least I believe that that's a reason why he would go back, is that it's, like, this personal stakes for him. I really like the depiction of him as, like, someone who has tried to tell this story and is being ridiculed as, like, a survivor of this thing. And that he's really changed as a person after, like, what happened in Jurassic Park, because he nearly died. Well, and also they set it up that, like, he had signed non-disclosure agreements, so basically the whole company that owns Jurassic Park did a huge PR war to really practically ruin his career, and it seems like it's mostly worked. Yeah, so and I think that this movie does a really good job of keeping the themes intact of, like, sort of capitalism ver- versus nature. That's a very big conflict in this movie, is that InGen is trying to extract the dinosaurs and take them to the mainland. And- to San Diego. Yes. Kind of, it's so hard to believe that anybody would be that idiotic. Yeah, I mean, the moment that they said, oh, we're going to bring it to America, I was like, uh, now it's dumb. Also, like, now it's dumb. Hammond learned something at the end of Jurassic Park, but no, he didn't. This movie completely invalidates it. Mm, he's changed, though. I mean, he's still making bad choices, but he now respects nature and wants to preserve it. The real, like, bad guy of this movie turns out to be Hammond's nephew. The guy in the glasses? Yes, yeah. the guy in the glasses. And he's, like, he controls the No, the Hammond sends them there to break the animals out of captivity because he doesn't think that they should be theme park attractions. He just wants them to be kind of preserved on this island because they're alive, and that's kind of his legacy. Again, it's kind of problematic, but I think that that's true to his character. Like, I think it's amusing that he learned a lesson at the end of Jurassic Park, but now is still trying to find some way to, like, salvage some good out of this and make his legacy not the guy who fucked up and had the dinosaurs kill everyone. And now he's just like, I can still keep the dinosaurs, but they're just going to stay on this island by themselves and they won't be used for commercial purposes. I don't know. Like, Hammond's character is in this movie so little that I almost didn't really appreciate having him in there at all it just seemed like a seasoning of, oh, the, we feel obligated to have him back in the it. kids too i was so excited when i first saw the kids yeah because i was a kid then and then they're not in the movie but i liked that they at least had a cameo and it, i think like them going back would have been more contrived of it. all of it's contrived to me all of it's very contrived to me i do think it makes total sense chris that you were saying earlier that peter stormare's character's death was actually in the first book because in this movie i felt like it had absolutely no fucking reason to happen like it's set up from like a mile away they take like three scenes to build up to this guy's death but then when it comes it's like who was this character anyway yeah, why do we cares? give a shit it's it doesn't feel like an earned death it feels like well we wanted an action scene it seems yeah it felt so, like we, oh someone has to die now yeah he's oh, disposable okay. it felt it felt a lot more like a b movie like a slasher movie where they felt obligated to have more kills the way that i think of all the jurassic park sequels is like the jaws sequels mm-hmm. where jaws is one of the most like brilliant monstery creature movies ever and all the sequels are kind of jokes that no one even remembers or thinks about or takes kind of seriously like maybe you'll put on jaws two three or four to like you know just kind of laugh or just have something on that's kind of like fun but you don't really take it seriously as like a great movie and i believe none of those were filmed by spielberg 
And that's how I feel like all, even the Jurassic World movies, they just feel like B movies. But the reason that. Especially the Jurassic World movies. But just like, it bothers me that they still have huge budgets and A list actors and the hype around them is like, we're supposed to still care about them like how we care about the Jurassic Park original movie. And that bothers me. So maybe this movie and the sequels would bother me less if they really were B movies that were like, kind of just like, shit out. And, like, maybe you see him and enjoy him, but, like, you, like, there's just something about it that just bothers me so much that they're, like, big budgets, great casts, and I feel like it's just, like, a waste because the stories are not anywhere near as good. I totally disagree that, like, I think that this movie and then the next sequels are, like, completely different scenarios. Like, you can tell this is a Spielberg movie still. There's a lot of really interesting shots, really interesting sequences. I think the movie, like, looks great, and the script is not as strong as the first movie's script. The characters, they have a little bit less to do. But I think on a story level, this works pretty well to have this sort of group of, like, nature observers come along and who are trying to preserve nature and then this group of hunters i think that's an interesting conflict of like and talking about big game hunting is kind of an interesting thing to introduce to the jurassic park world i think like some of the characters come across like uh richard schiff's character like sacrifices himself for the other guys and i find that like a sad scene when he could just like leave and instead he like dies saving their lives and I like the, like, Vince Vaughn character as, like, a Greenpeace kind of asshole. I feel like just a huge problem with this is that there are too many characters in this movie, and I don't care about any of them because almost none of them act like real people. They don't behave like real people or react like real people. And I can't get over just the entire thing with Julian Moore's character. She would sign up for something like this without talking to her boyfriend, who I hope that she believes that he actually went through this horrible thing and this near-death experience, and she wouldn't even tell him she's going or listen to his cautionary tale. When he was literally one of the only human survivors. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she explains that she doesn't talk to him because she knew that he would stop her. Why would she go? Because she's a scientist and she wants to study this. All of it is so stupid. It's so dumb. (laughs) My significant other went through this horrible thing and said, I care about you. Don't go. You're going to die. I wouldn't not only not go, but then just not tell him and already go. And I... I, it just feels like a plot contri- contrivance. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's. I, I totally agree, and I think this in this movie it flips the roles of the scientists to being they're the naive nincompoops this time around because even with not just the kind of common sense practical knowledge of like oh these dinosaurs do not coexist with humanity and do not belong here you have the scientist with both that and the literal lived experience of having outrun and survived and escaped from this place um but in this movie we're supposed to believe that he or his significant other much less his daughter would submit themselves to going on that journey again I don't know. I think it checks out well enough, like, for the story. Like, a lot of scientists do very dangerous things. They live with predators, and they observe them. And so this just seems like the same thing as, like, what she's already done before. But if you have a significant other, like, say you went to, like, some country, and you, like, nearly died, and it was horrific, and people did die in your group, and then you go back and tell your significant other how traumatic it was, and then they just go... They don't even tell you, and they just go. (laughs) 
But like, I think it's it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for her to do something that no scientist has ever been able to do before. They did do it, and they yes. almost died. Scientists were able to do it before. There no, was that whole it's thing. a complete. The point of this time is that they're in the natural world, and she's observing like how they exist naturally instead of like in a behind pen. I just, I absolutely do not buy any of this, and I don't buy the fact that they're that close that he would go there to save her and yet she wouldn't talk to him about it first and i understand then there's no movie <laughs> but like she specifically says why she did that. yeah and i don't buy any of it i don't buy that a real person would act that way or think that way a lot of scientists do a lot of like extreme I, things i don't buy any of that of like what they're saying their relationship is and like i don't buy any well, their of relationship it. is like kind of on again off again he cares about her enough to go back to this place where he doesn't want to go because he almost died. That's how much he, he's not like, well, fuck that woman. <laughs> like, I love that you rode in here on a white horse. I really do. It's very touching. Very dramatic. I just need you to show up in a cab every once in a while, too. Come on, Kelly, what are you doing? No, 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 what are you doing? Hey, 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 don't go out there. It's not safe. Stay in here. Come back. Okay. I know what I'm doing. Uh, you guys should definitely go. But I'm going to stay. I love you. I just don't need you right now. I'll tell you what you need. Uh, a good antipsychotic. I'll be back in five or six days. No, you'll be back in five or six pieces. What bothers you is that I'm not afraid of this place and you are. Of course I am. That's the whole thing. Again, like, hypothetically, if Julianne Moore's character had some kind of death wish, you know, had experienced some kind of awful trauma or, like, couldn't get over the trauma of him leaving or something like that, if their relationship had completely imploded after he came back because he wasn't able to deal with it, like, there could have been narrative soil that they could have laid down that would have made that make more sense and feel more organic well, they have a discussion where he has, like, abandoned her at a lot of things. So she that's why she went, was because, like, he didn't show up, like, at a dinner with his parents or something. I read enough into that that I think it makes sense. These are just characters saying how why they're doing something, the motivations, but it doesn't tr- feel true. Yes, I think Lost World is neither greater than the sum of its parts, nor are its parts all there compared to the first movie. I agree with you to the extent that I think Spielberg made a noble effort trying to pull all those elements together as well as the first one was. I just do not think it succeeds. The train truck sequence uh, dangling over the cliff is one instance of where all those elements do come together. I think for me, the other big moment of that was where we finally get raptors, and there's a scene in a in a gigantic kind of expansive field. Uh, look, It looks like wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you see from kind of a bird's eye view and then a bunch of different angles, the raptors are very systematically hunting the humans. Yeah, I think that sequence is great. I it think is- that one is th- the only other moment in the movie where I get a thrill and where when our characters get into that scenario, you really feel a, a great fear for those characters. I mean, my overall feeling on this movie is that Jurassic Park is an A movie and this is a B movie. Like, that's the grade I would give it. I think it's not perfect. Definitely doesn't stand up to the first one in terms of story, theme, or really any level, except for visually, I think, like, the dinosaurs look great and the film is also, like, really shot well and has, like, some really great sequences. 
I just think this movie is so fun. Seeing a T-Rex in San Diego is like one of the things that I wanted to see the most. And that actually was like a last minute addition, which you can kind of tell. Like it doesn't really feel like super organic to the script. The original ending was going to be a pteranodon attack as they were escaping on helicopters. Oh man, how that would have been so much better. But I just, I love that sequence in San Diego. I think it's so fun. It's ridiculous, of course. And it really is an homage to like old Godzilla movies. And King Kong, definitely. mm Mm-hmm. But And Spielberg put that in because he knew he wasn't going to direct another one of them and he just wanted to direct like a scene where it gets out in America. I honestly, I'm kind of surprised that wasn't just like the whole idea for the sequel was like dinosaurs, like they try and open the park in San Diego. I'm surprised that we've had four of these movies and this is the only sequence where like dinosaurs are terrorizing like modern day people. What do you mean? You mean like a neighborhood, like an American neighborhood? Yeah, like not on an island setting, basically. I mean, they're all modern day people, but they're all like going to the dinosaurs rather than like the dinosaurs like encroaching on our world. I love that this movie came out the summer before Godzilla. So they already knew Godzilla was coming out. And this is basically just a fuck you to Godzilla that like they are going to throw a T-Rex. And I think that scene is so much better than anything in Godzilla. I don't think anyone's defending Godzilla for one thing. (laughs) No one in this room. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I think Spielberg just brings a lot of his magic to this movie, like, even though a lot of elements of it are kind of subpar for, like, compared to the first one, like, I just think, like, there's so many fun shots and moments and, like, the trailer scene, the raptor attack scene, and then this scene, like, I have a great time watching this movie. I'm thoroughly entertained, like, throughout. We can't not talk about the gymnastic scene. (laughs) Yeah, I thought we were we gonna really need to. I thought I was. I was gonna try and get away with that, but okay. nope. Of all the uneven bars <laughs> we have to cross, <laughs> it is in a movie that I hate. The cringiest scene of the movie, <laughs> where Vanessa Lee Chester, I don't remember her name, Kelly. She, earlier in the movie, she's saying like, "You didn't know that I was cut by the gymnastics team," as an example of why he's a bad dad. And then they're like stuck on the island. They're stuck in some like shack. With a raptor and Vanessa Lee Chester, like, sees some bars and then does, like, a whole gymnastics routine and then says, hey, you! <laughs> and the raptor turns his head. Like he's, a, like, he's a school bully about to go to pound town. She does and then, an Olympic-level <laughs> uneven bars routine. She does gold medal level. And then says, hey, you! <laughs> and then kicks the raptor. And that is the only time... I'm not sure about Jurassic World, but at least in the first three movies, that is the only instance of a human (laughs) killing outright a dinosaur. (laughs) Is her and her fucking gymnastics routine. She's a child dinosaur murderer. (laughs) (laughs) And a world-class Olympian. Yeah, it was really funny. (laughs) I'm not gonna, like, defend that. It doesn't bother me that much. Like, I find it in keeping with the rest of the movie. Like, it's just... This movie is sillier than the first one. But... (laughs) That movie got groans in the theater, and I remember that. People were like, oh. Yeah. The moment, absolutely. I think I was one of the groans. You probably heard me groaning from Louisiana at the time. I just love that the raptor, like, takes his time. Hey, you. Huh? <laughs> actually, in the Criterion Collection of the, of the movie, you actually hear the raptor. He does a bit of director's commentary, too. So let's move on to Jurassic Park 3 a little bit. Um, We don't have to spend too much time on this, but it is interesting (laughs) enough to... I disagree. 
<laughs> well, I didn't say it was good interesting. Uh, Jurassic Park 3 was directed by Joe Johnston, not Steven Spielberg. It was written by... It said directed by not Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> he was an inferior clone of Steven Groner Lab. <laughs> It was written by Peter Buckman, Alexander Payne, and Jim Taylor. Yeah, that's sad. I've known that Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor have written some stinkers and have, like, polished other turds in Hollywood. They've been script doctors for a very long time. But they got credit for this movie, which means they did a lot. This was between Election and About Schmidt. Just fits right in there. Look, they got got paid. Oh, you're defending them (laughs) now. I'm not Shyamalan to choose all that. I don't know. (laughs) You said you hate this movie. I do. (laughs) Why are you defending that? I think it's because sometimes with writers, it's just a job and there's only so much they can do. Like, the producers are like, I want this kind of movie. Or the director is like, I want this kind of movie. They did not do that only so much. Whatever. I'm not going to defend them. This movie's garbage. (laughs) Yes. Lest anyone think that I can't admit that a Jurassic Park movie is bad because I like The Lost World. This, I was so angry watching it this time. I saw it in theaters at the time and I remember being disappointed and not loving it, but I don't remember like thinking like that was horrible. Like I still had a good enough time with it at the time. Really? <laughs> like relatively. I mean, it was 2001, so I was still in high school. I think this may have been one of the movies, one of the first movies where I and like everyone in the audience like openly heckled it. I was trying to think. I, yeah. I don't. I, for a while, and it still might be up there, when anybody asks, like, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? It was Jurassic Park 3. For a long time. It's still, like... Obviously, there's movies like The Room of Birdemic. That's not... That doesn't count. This movie was so bad, but it, like, made me angry. Yeah. That's why I appreciate The Lost World so much in comparison, because I think this movie is garbage. It's just so terrible, and I think... The Lost World is, like, miles above this, even though Jurassic Park is miles above The Lost World. But, like, this movie does everything wrong. Everything. Can I say the one thing I remember? Because I did not watch this. I didn't rewatch it for the podcast. Because I. I watched it maybe, like, a year ago. I remember that there's, like, a little boy who, like, is on the island and that, like, brings people searching for him. And when they find him, he's like, oh, hey. <laughs> like, to his parents, who he hasn't seen in months. And he's been, like stranded on this island he like runs and hugs them no he's like yes i just watched this movie you haven't seen it in years so the script was written five weeks before shooting (laughs) the original story was teens on an island and the director joe johnson called it a bad episode of friends (laughs) i think as a movie idea that's better than what we got here but whatever friends with dinosaurs yeah I could see, like, a teen, like... Instead of Friends with Benefits? It would be more of, like, a slasher movie, it would feel like. But I don't know, that could be kind of interesting. Or, like, Lord of the Flies on an island with dinosaurs. Yeah. I think it could be pretty awesome, but that would also be, like, an R movie. Right. Yeah, so Spielberg rejected that script, hired Payne. The script was not finished when they started shooting. Jesus. John August was another writer who did work. I mean, this is, like, another reason I don't totally blame writers, because look at how much time they're given before they're like, gotta get in production. I mean, it's true. You can only write as much time. You know what I mean? You they have to get. wrote a talking raptor dream sequence. I'm not. But that was probably like a first draft, and they're like, gotta film the first draft. Who was it voiced by? I don't know. Someone said Alan as a raptor. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, Alan Grant's in this. Yeah. So the longest cut of this movie was 96 minutes without credits. <laughs> that was the longest available version. Like, this movie, start from the beginning with what's wrong with it. Sam Neill isn't Alan Grant in this movie. It's just not even the same character at all. That's my problem with Malcolm in the sequel. I think that that made more sense, but we can just not go back to talking (laughs) about that movie. So the story of this movie is a boy and his stepfather get, like, stranded on the island while their pair are sailing around it. I don't know why they're parasailing (laughs) around it. Like, don't do that. So his parents go to Alan Grant and say that they want to do a tour of the island, like an air tour, and will he come along with them? And of course he's like, absolutely not. And then they're like, we'll give you money. And he's like, yes. (laughs) Like, it literally cuts from there to he's on the plane. Of all characters, like, Alan Grant would never go back to that park. But it turns out they're not even rich. They are just, like, people from, like, the Midwest who, like, pretended they had money. And he didn't even, like, check into it. Like, he's supposed to be a smart character. And then all of a sudden they, like, land on the island and he's like, why are you landing? This movie also does something I I cannot abide, which, (laughs) don't fuck with my park. (laughs) It introduces a new dinosaur, Spinosaurus, that's bigger than the T-Rex. And, like, it just kills the T-Rex in the opening scene that you see a T-Rex. Basically kills off, like, the iconic villain from the first two movies but the there's a t-rex in jurassic world so isn't that the same t-rex no it's a different no it's a different one it is i thought that was supposed to be no and i and i do remember like the hype for that like new dinosaur before the movie came out and i remember it killing the t-rex it's yeah i mean it's that's the kind of uh plot contrivance that you reach for when you don't have any fucking story and this movie looks like garbage. Like, the effects are garbage. They're all pretty much CGI. That I do remember as well. It's was just seeing how bad that CGI was. It's embarrassing. The only thing I like in this movie is that we get to see, like, Alan and Ellie together a little bit. And she ended up having a child. And so that, like, kind of checks out. And I, I think it's nice to see her again. But they also, like, put the John Williams theme, like, anywhere. Like, they you overuse it so much. Like, it's used so sparingly in the first movie and the second one. And this one, it's just, like, like even when they're just, like, hang gliding in the opening scene, they, like, use the Jurassic Park theme. I'm like, no, you can't do it yet. Like, it has to be a triumphant moment. And there are no triumphant moments in this movie. This movie's garbage. Yeah, it I is. I can't describe it any other way. Like, Taya Leone and William H. Macy. Like, Taya Leone is, like, an awful character. She's really bad in this. I mean, everyone's, everyone's bad. bad. William H. Macy is a great actor. He's shitty in this movie. Everyone's shitty. There's just so much that's off about this movie. And so the original ending was that the military would rescue them, and there would be this giant military battle between the dinosaurs and the military. And then they just, like, I guess, like, ran out of money. So the movie just ends. They just get to the edge of the island, and then it's like, the military is here. And the movie just, like, ends. And I remember being so frustrated that they, like, led up to this big set piece. Why would you bring the military there and then not have any scenes where military people are fighting dinosaurs? It wasn't even a good movie to make fun of. Like, I was, like, angry at it and bored and frustrated. It wasn't, like, a good, bad movie, even. So, I would like to mention that the Jurassic Park movies are a series about divorce. (laughs) Yeah, they are. So, in the first movie, uh, not only is Ian Malcolm, like, he has this big line about divorce and always getting divorced. Lex and Tim are there because their parents are getting divorced. And then in the second movie, it's about 
Ian Malcolm and his daughter, who was in one of the aforementioned divorces. And there's a lot of conflict there because he's kind of an absentee father. The third movie, Taya Leone and William H. Macy are divorced and get back together because they're being chased by dinosaurs and also because her her current husband was eaten, which she does not react. Like, she, the he, like, drops down from his, like, parachute, and he's all, like, skeletal and gross, and she screams, but she doesn't react with sadness at all. <laughs> it's very weird. And She's, then, like, instantly ready to move on. In the fourth one, the kids are again, like, their parents are getting divorced, and that's why they send them to Jurassic Park. That's really... I hadn't noticed that, but that is I clearly that a total through line in that whole franchise. This time, and it's very... Like, it's very strange that that's in every single one of these movies, like... <laughs> the next one, two dinosaurs get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> two two female dinosaurs. Oh no, you guys, lesbian it's divorce. Very progressive. <laughs> so I, Jurassic Park got woke. <laughs> I do think that there's something thematic about divorce that kind of goes along with Jurassic Park, where it's like it's about like the nature, like the way that nature is supposed to be, kind of being corrupted, and that's kind of how it feels when your parents get divorced. Is like like you have everything in order, and then like something like kind of goes chaotic and wrong you know who i am yeah your parents are here they're looking for you together together that's not good they don't do so well together you'd be surprised what people can do when they when they have to I definitely see your point about like it being a kind of through line in the plot of each of these movies. I don't see how it applies to the broader thematic things that the movies are talking about. The movies are about harnessing nature and how that's a mistake. At least in the first two movies, that to me seems more like a Spielberg influence because so many of his movies revolve around the nuclear family relationship and the success or failure of that. And also, really specifically, like, a lot of his movies have these narrative elements where families get torn apart and then come back together in some form by the end. Like, I'm thinking even especially of, like, War of the Worlds or something like that. So I think that's kind of more coming from the plot elements of these kind of action fantasy movies. But that's an interesting idea of how it kind of relates to the themes. Yeah, and another way that Michael Crichton parallels Ian Malcolm is he had five wives. <laughs> so, lots of divorce in his life. Yeah, I actually like Jurassic World well enough. It's definitely inferior to like both of the Spielberg movies while being slightly well better than Jurassic Park 3. Um there it does a lot of things that I like, but it also does a lot of things that are I not great. I think ultimately the new Jurassic Park movies, they only aim to be B-movies. They only aim to be popcorn. They're garbage in a different way. Yeah. So in Jurassic World, the whole premise is like, it's all in the same universe. Like all of the past things have happened and yet they it's in the future where they have opened the park and it's successful. But I just wish like the first scene of Jurassic World was like, going back to Nedry in the first one and he like decides not to do whatever he's going to do with like stealing the the DNA mm-hmm. and then like none of the bad things happen and then there and then the park just opens and it's successful <laughs> like it's like alternate just timeline like retcon Nedry yeah because the the, uh, the two sequels it's and what happened in Jurassic Park it's like the park would never open even just based off insurance but yet somehow it right. does 
I think I only saw Jurassic World because I wanted to see it with you so we could kind of like make fun of it. Mm. Or I guess when we saw it, I was like entertained. When I watched it again, I was like, oh, this is garbage. But the trailer for the new one is just like the dinosaurs. There's no wonder to them because the effects aren't as good. It's just a CGI monster fighting a CGI monster. There's no like wonderment or thought put into the composition of these shots. Or and it's weird. It feels like they move less realistically in the real world than they did in the first movie. They, they put so much thought and time and effort and A plus talent to the first one. That it makes, it doesn't make sense why they wouldn't in the other ones. And they didn't have to. They have the Jurassic Park name. They can make money off that. Why put more effort into making it better when you know that people are going to go see Jurassic Park movie? But they did, they did put the same amount of effort into the second movie. I disagree. I don't think it's as bad as 3 and beyond. You don't think the dinosaurs look good? No. I don't think they look like shit, but I don't (laughs) think they look as good. I don't think any, I don't think anything looks as good as the the effects in Jurassic Park. Well, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how those effects hold up 25 years later. Yeah, yeah and I don't think The Lost World is as good. I Again, it's not shit, but it, I, I can definitely tell some are CGI. Um, and beyond that, I think they're all CGI in, in Jurassic World. They just don't look good at all. Yeah, I mean, I would say to anyone out there, if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, uh, why first of all but <laughs> you might fix be a that. child second of all yeah you may be uh newly <laughs> my parents might be raising you you may be gestating inside someone's stomach right now and not have seen any movies but why is that belly not playing jurassic park <laughs> yeah exactly um you should definitely watch jurassic park it is an utter masterpiece it operates at a level of filmmaking and talent and artistry and craft and just in sheer entertainment and thrills that basically no other movie especially of its ilk as like a big blockbuster can touch yeah i don't like that i've become a grump in this episode because i love jurassic (laughs) park and uh it's great please watch it it's amazing i agree jurassic park is a must see don't rob yourself of that experience like it is a landmark film in so many ways so like i feel like you are not educated in pop culture or cinema if you don't see jurassic park And that's all the life we can find a way for on this episode of the When We Were Young podcast. On our next episode, a comet is on a collision course with Earth. And also an asteroid is on a collision course with Earth. We are returning to the especially apocalyptic summer of 1998 with the twin disaster movies Deep Impact and Armageddon. When We Were Young is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you have a suggestion for something for us to cover, hit us up on Facebook, and we'd love it if you left us a review of five stars or more on iTunes. I'm Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. And I'm Big Chris, the human piece of toast. After careful consideration, I've decided not to endorse your park. So have I.